0: Hey, uh, why don't you grab your Bible, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 36 for today's study. Jeremiah 36. Well, I'm excited to teach this passage. Uh, Wednesday night, um, we're gonna be looking at this, um, you know, in its entirety, these chapters. We, we hopefully get three or four chapters this Wednesday. We'll see how far we get. But I, again, like last week, unusually, I, 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 you know, most of the time I go through one or two verses, on a Sunday, and then we look at the whole chapter Wednesday night. But I, I, I want you to see chapter 36. Like last week, we looked at a whole chapter. Uh, this week is chapter 36. And I want to see the context of this because it's so good. And it's about the Word of God. And it gives us sort of a mindset to be cautious about, about the Word of God and a challenge uh, that I have for you. And it's, it's embedded in the story of the book of Jeremiah. I think it's going to be rich and it's going to be good. What's your mindset uh, when it comes to the Bible, to the Word of God, the book that's in your hand? Because today, a lot of people have different views and different ways of thinking about it. Some people, they say, well, it's not, it contains the Word of God, but it is not the Word of God. There's some things that might be from God, some things that might be from man, but it's a good book, the old good book. Is that what it is to you, just a good book? Well, there's a lot of good books, but is this Is this what it claims to be of itself? The Bible itself claims to be inspired, God-breathed. And how much of it's God-breathed? How much of it's inspired? Well, if you ask the Jesus Seminar people from the 1980s. Do you remember those guys? If you're older here, you remember? It was a panel of doofy so-called scholars wearing their cardigan sweaters and puffing their pipes saying, we will discern which things Jesus really said versus the things he may have said versus the things he absolutely didn't say. Puff, 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 puff. And they were in Eugene, Oregon, of all places, by the way. Oregon cranks out all kinds of gems. But this Jesus Seminar group, uh, these are the same guys you see on the Discover channel and History channel when it comes to things of the Bible and religion and all that stuff. Be careful with these dudes, man. This, these guys went through and they said, We'll mark the things Jesus absolutely said in green and the things that he might've said in yellow and the things he absolutely didn't say in red. They had a coloring system and they went through this whole thing. And uh, I found it interesting that most of what Jesus said, they said he never really said. One of the few verses that they said Jesus really did say it for sure was this one. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I think it's because they needed funding for their stupid Jesus seminar project <laughs> thing. So, oh yeah, Jesus said give the money. That's for sure, uh, absolute. Uh, ridiculous, totally ridiculous. And textual criticism has been around from the very beginning. In fact, I'm gonna argue that textual criticism has been around all the way back in Jeremiah's day. What did people do with the word of Jeremiah that happened to be the word of the Lord? See, this is where this chapter is so, so cool because it's Jeremiah taking his word that he hears from the Lord and it's then put down on paper and put in a scroll and it becomes part of the Hebrew Bible. We watch this process here in chapter 36. And then we're gonna see the reaction and the response and what, what people do with the word of God. And I've found that things really haven't changed all that much. I hope you and I, I hope we land on the right side of this thing. My goal today is to, hopefully if you're not already, to have you fall in love with the Bible. God's holy word inspired and inerrant Those are fancy words. Inspired means God breathed. God spoke the words and men wrote it it down and that's what we have here. Inspired, inerrant just means without errors. Does the Bible have mistakes in it? Well, the the Bible, if, if you and I had the original text of the Hebrew and the Greek and all that, we would know that it was without errors and perfect. Translational issues, we'll talk about that too. But truly we have what I believe to be is the inerrant inspired word of God. Did you know that there was a study done a few years back uh, and they they asked 10,000 clergymen here in America uh, what their position was on this. This uh, sociologist, Jeffrey Haddon, asked if they believed in the scriptures that they are inspired and inerrant, uh, without errors and inspired by God. 95% of Episcopalians said no, we don't, 95%. Now that shouldn't surprise you if you're from the Episcopal church. You'll, you'll know why that is. Like they really don't believe in the Bible at all, largely. They, they sort of look like Catholics, but are not. They're like Catholic Protestants, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. All the liturgical uh, things and priestly robes and all that stuff, but kind of minus the Bible. That's the Episcopal church. 87% of the Methodists said, nope, it's not inspired and it is in, it's full of errors. Uh, this one shocked me. 82% of the Presbyterians said, nope. Uh, they don't believe the scriptures are inspired in, in the inerrant word of God. 77% of the American Lutherans said no. And this one really shocked me. 67% of Baptist clergymen said the Bible is not perfectly inspired and it is uh, not inerrant. The Baptists, man, they're supposed to be the solid ones. Um, as it turns out, so many people are, and we wonder why people don't believe the Bible anymore. If pastors, truthfully, I, I did, attend seminary for just a really short time. Um, And I know why they call it cemetery now. (laughs) You know, pastors have joked about that for years. Uh, Did you go to cemetery? I mean, seminary. And the reason why? Well, a lot of these seminaries today, many of the pastors that failed, they went out and tried to do churches, but they failed. So they went and taught seminary to teach pastors how to keep failing. And so they, I, I went to this one class and I remember this guy was teaching that basically the Bible is full of errors and we really can't rely on it as the inspired Word of God. And we wonder why churches are deader than a doornail? Why 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 there's just stupid stuff going on in the church? Man, I'm here to tell you, the Bible that you hold in your hand today is a miraculous book, a powerful book. It says of itself, it's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's the perfect Word of God. Well, Brett, I have some problems with it. Well, let's go through this chapter and hopefully we'll be able to talk about some of those things. Um, Here in chapter 36, verse one, it starts out, and it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. The the word Lord there is Jehovah, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, D. that means Jehovah. Came from Jehovah saying, verse two, Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I propose to do unto them or purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon the roll of a book. Um, now, before we get too deep into this, you Wednesday-nighters might be saying, but I'm confused. Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was told, don't even pray for these people. They're lost, they're gonna be destroyed. It's not even, a, it's, a, it's a done deal. And now all the way up in chapter 36, we have again, verse 30. It might be that the house of Judah will repent and break off their sins like there's hope. Well, which one is it? Is there hope or is there no hope? Um, you Wednesday nighters, what's the answer? Who, can, who wants to take a stab? Why is this not a contradiction of the earlier part of Jeremiah? Anybody? Somebody said it over here. Yes, it's, the book of Jeremiah is chronologically out of order. Um, on purpose. It's, it's not written, like, you know, we Americans love linear timelines, and we, that's the way we think. The Jews, they think very differently. They think more in a cyclical, circular, spiral kind of logic and thinking, which is actually kind of brilliant if you follow how they use that. But but Jeremiah is not written chronologically, and we know that from the first verse that we just read. It, it came to us in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, and if you know, Jehoiakim's the son of Josiah, which Josiah and Jeremiah, they were just like teeny boppers together. They were teenagers. And then, so this is early in his ministry. Later on, Jeremiah said, okay, stop praying for these people. Don't even try to convince them, they're toast. And it's not a contradiction, it's just Jeremiah is organized more in a themed sort of category. Chapter 36 was early in his ministry and that's why you kind of go backwards here. Now, what's the theme of chapter 36? Well, it has to do with the word of God. And I'm gonna break this chapter into five sections and you can jot them down if you want to. It might be helpful for you to remember. But first I wanna show you this first four verse section that we read. It speaks of the inspiration of the word. Here we have a little snapshot of how God breathed his word to humanity. Then humanity wrote it down and made a record of it and kept it. God breathed inspired word of God. It happened right here. How to go, and it gives us the details, right in the words that I've spoken to thee, and that's exactly what happened. Verse four, Jeremiah called Baruch. It was kind of like Jeremiah's scribe, sort of his secretary. And he said, uh, Baruch, just write what I say. And so Jeremiah started saying what the Lord was telling him and Baruch wrote it down and put it in a scroll of a book, is the idea there. That's how the whole Bible was written. Matthew, when he wrote the gospel message in Matthew, the first gospel, Matthew wrote it down and as he was writing, the Holy Spirit inspired him and breathed the word. Okay, Brett, I got that. But I have a problem because I know there's missing books. There's lost books. Where'd you learn that? From the guy wearing the cardigan sweater and the puffing pipe. We know there's many books that should have been puff, 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 puff in the Bible and it's not there. Where's the book of Enoch? They ask. Or other books, the book you know, of Judas or other books that they're looking for. Here's the thing. There are a lot of other books that were written in the first century and around this time, even in the old times. But here's the thing. When the Bible was put together, there was a measurement. The early church fathers had what they called the canon. The word was reed. And they used a reed, like a reed you'd get in a swamp. They'd pull that out and they'd use those as like a tent measure. And they'd get out the reed or the canon and they would say, does this book measure up to what is the inspired, inerrant, perfect word of God. And if it didn't make their standard, it didn't make the book. And it's my, I'm convinced thoroughly that, that even as Jeremiah was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down these words that God gave him during this time and it became the Bible. Equally so, those early church fathers compiled those books and, and excluded the ones that weren't inspired and kept the ones that were. So where is the book of Enoch? Well, you can find it, you can read it, but it's not in the Bible, why? Because it didn't make the canon of scripture. Strange though, because the book of Jude actually quotes the book of Enoch. Did you know that? That's kind of interesting. So the book of Enoch's an interesting thing to read, but the whole book of Enoch, we don't count it as scripture. And part of, there's a very academic, long-winded thing I could talk about, about the canon of scripture and how it was compiled and, and how trustworthy that whole process was. But For sake of time today, I'm just going to say, I have chosen to say, I I believe even as Jeremiah was inspired to write these words, the early church fathers were inspired to compile the books that were part of the Bible. Now, later on, other people tried to add books. Several hundred years later, they tried to add the Catholic church out of the Apocrypha. And a lot of those books were the books rejected by the early church fathers saying, no, this isn't inspired. Um, so there was an argument. And, and then people started saying, and, and your college professor, well, we saw, found the lost book of this or the ancient book of that. And it's, and it's better than the Bible and blah, blah, blah. Just crazy stuff that people say. They sound very convincing. They sound very academic. But I believe in the Bible that we have in our hands as the infallible and the perfect word of God. And I hope you do too. It's an important thing to know because uh, there's a lot of people that are trying to undo and undermine the Bible. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So when a, when a scripture was given, it was inspired and it's perfect. Now, let me explain something. And hopefully I don't go too long on this. I've spent way too much time in the previous services on this, this point. So I'm going to. Um, uh, don't get hung up on the various translations as much. Um, people, if you hear a pastor like me say, well, no, the King James says it this way, but the New International says it that way. And the ESV puts it the other way. And you might say, well, which one's the inspired word of God? And the answer is yes. But, but there, is a, there is an asterisk and that is, these are translations. What's a translation? Taking something from one la- language, translating it into another language. Now, if you and I were, how many of you are Hebrew and Greek scholars? Both Hebrew and Greek. And also let's put uh, uh, Aramaic on that too. Anybody here, Aramaic, Hebrew and Greek scholar? Okay, not a lot of you. Um, <laughs> Um, Now, if you could read the original text, then you could read uh, ancient manuscripts that were very close. You could go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and read the book of Isaiah. And what's amazing, if you look at an honest look at the Dead Sea Scrolls written in Hebrew, you would find that it actually matches our book of Isaiah quite amazingly, even into the English translation. That was one of the big deals, by the way, about the Dead Sea Scroll find. Perhaps one of the greatest archaeological finds in the history of the world. Why? Well, back in the old days, 17, 1800s, so-called scholars. Those were the cardigan-wearing, pipe-puffing guys, too, back in those days, saying, we know that the Bible you hold in your hand today is not anything like the Bible back... You know, when, when we read the book of Isaiah, they said, it's nothing like the book of Isaiah, the original one. If we had the original manuscript, you'd see. That's what they said for years. And by the way, during the so-called enlightenment period, periods and all this stuff, we saw people start to say, wait a minute, the Bible's not really trustworthy because it's not the same. It's been thousands of years. How do we know Isaiah's like that? Well, one day in the 1940s, a little boy was tending his flock out in the Negev desert in a place called Qumran. And he he loses one of his little sheep. So he's looking up in these little caves in the cliffs and he throws a rock down one cave to hear if it hits the sheep. But instead of hearing a sheep, he hears a shattering jar. And so he gets a torch and he runs in there. And this is the 1940s. And he finds his rock actually had an old jar that had been sealed. And he looked around and there was a bunch of jars. And all those jars were sealed. And as as he looked in, he found scrolls with all kinds of writing on them. As it turns out, those are the Dead Sea Scrolls. An amazing find, archeological dig, people people freaked out. It's a kind of a long story because the Arab people at the time sold those uh, just because they were so cool. And they had to regather and buy all this, a lot of it back. And it's a long story. But um, to this day, we have the entire book of Isaiah. That's only a few hundred years from the time Isaiah wrote the book. It's a manuscript that's only a few hundred years apart from when Isaiah actually wrote it. So suddenly we could compare it to our Bible and say, how much different is it? And the answer, zip, no difference at all. If you translate the book of Isaiah from Hebrew, from the Dead Sea Scrolls to today English, you'd have the same Bible we have now. It's an amazing, and by the way, the most controversial books of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all part of the Dead Sea Scroll find. It's an awesome thing. It, it should have shut the mouths of the critics, but it never does. But all that to say, uh, the Bible, um, you know even though it's been thousands of years, the Bible that we hold, the translations we have, man, I'm so thankful for those. Now, here's the thing, it gets really tricky because some of you might even be King James only people. That might be why you go to Aether Creek. I go to Aether Creek because it's the King James only church. And if the King James only was good enough for Paul the apostle, it's good enough for me. Now, wait a minute. The King James, now why do I read the King James? I'll tell you, it's because I love the King James for a lot of reasons. One reason is in 1611, when King James had this project uh, you know, orchestrated, he just happened to have accessible to himself profoundly amazing scholars who knew Greek and Hebrew, and he put together a team, you might argue, that might've been one of the best uh, teams linguistically that you could have ever imagined. And so the King James Bible is an amazing translation of the Bible into English. That's why it's withstood you know, centuries and we still read it today. Now, some of you say, yeah, but the these and the thou's and the verilies and the dits and all that stuff. I can't get into that. I get that. But I have to say, uh, for me, there's a, there's a poetic value to the King James. It reads a little different. So I tend to reverence it maybe in a different way. Um, it slows me down when I read it because I'm not as familiar with the old English. And so it makes me stop and think, what is being really said here? And it, it just, I just love the King James for all of those reasons. But I can't stand with my King James only buddies and say, sorry, dude, it's not. See, the King James only, a hardcore King James only person would say, even Brett, as you said, that the early church fathers compiled the books of the Bible of what was good and what was bad. They would argue that in the same way, um, the Holy Spirit inspired the translators for King James. And they'll say that was the last true inspired translation of the New Testament. Um, the problem with that, that I have, is I just can't get on board with the, the, the saying that the King James only is the best translation and the only translation that is acceptable today. Um, I do believe it's an amazing translation. Now the New International Version, let's talk about that one, or the NIV, the nearly inspired version. No, just kidding, just mess with you guys. The NIV, I like the NIV, the old one, but the new one, what's the difference? Well, if you have a pre-19, what is it, 84, I think it was, they started playing around with gender problems in the Bible. And so they started translating the NIV and and it got the worst, what was it, back somewhere in the 90s, they started doing the TNIV, today's NIV. And they started changing gender things, that the Bible actually, if you look at the original Hebrew or Greek text, it implied masculine or feminine, but the New International Version said, no, we're not gonna do that, we're gonna erase those. (laughs) And so if you have a modern TNIV or as they just call it now, the NIV again, but it's got the gender thing, I would kind of maybe think about getting a different translation if I were you, just gonna say it. Because they kind of purposefully had an agenda to change some stuff. The NIV, I I struggle with it for a couple other reasons. One, it's a good translation generally, but um, like you're missing verses. Like look up Acts chapter eight, what is it? Verse 27, I think it is. You don't have that verse. In your Bible? I do, because I have the anointed Bible. (laughs) No, I'm just just messing with it. But uh, there in the book of Acts, um, there's a verse missing in in that story of Philip and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch. Um, If you remember, it's Acts chapter eight, uh, verse 37. You just don't have that. You go from verse 36 to 38. And why is that not there? Well, your NIV will put a footnote there and say, well, there's a missing verse here, and here's why. And it has to do with the manuscripts that the NIV people used. Are they older or newer manuscripts? And so people argue, well, the older ones are more reliable than the newer ones. Well, which one's inspired, Brad? I'm worried that I, I read the NIV. Can I still be saved? Nope. No, I'm just kidding. You know what's great about the NIV is even though it doesn't have that verse, the same thing is spoken in other places in the Bible. The difference in translations will not change doctrine one tiny little bit. Do you understand that? The difference, you can still be saved and read the NIV. And that's, to me, the NIV is one of the weaker, honestly, just gonna say it. Um, there's some great new ones that I actually think scholarship is starting to really sign on to. Have you guys looked at the ESV, the English Standard Version? Um, some scholars, Hebrew linguistic scholars, Greek scholars are saying it's a great translation. And I have to say, I agree. Um, some scholars, the, the, the nerdiest of them, which usually means they're the smartest, they say the New American Standard Bible's the one. How many guys have a NASV, New American Standard, right now? Raise your hand. Yeah, you guys are probably the, the, the scholarly nerdy types. Uh, but it's good. The, the New American Standard is good. I got one of those. It's a very studious Bible. It just, to me, it does lack a little bit of the poetic value of the Bible. You know, when the King James says, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Uh, then any of you want to say, truly, truly, I say to you. It's like, it's just kind of, I don't know. But it's a great translation. Great. Well, what are the translations we should watch out for? Well, there are there some things you gotta watch out for. You see, there's some religious groups that started surfacing that wanted to change what the Bible said. It didn't fit their doctrine. So rather than submitting to the Bible as we have it and as it's withstood for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, really, they've said, we're gonna change it. And they changed it in ever so subtle ways. Whether you're talking about the boys in Brooklyn the Jehovah's Witness, Watchtower Society, those boys in Brooklyn, who do they do? Well, they, they, they came out with their own translation, but it's not a translation. It's called the, the New World Translation. If you have one of those, you need to get rid of that one because that's not a real translation. That's some people from Brooklyn, the guys that were trying to make the whole Jehovah's Witness thing fit with the Bible, and it doesn't. It's not a real translation. Watch out. Book of Mormon is also a book that was added to, to sort of fit a doctrine that was not biblical. Uh, Joseph Smith it came years and years and years later after the Bible. They, they added to the Bible as well, the Book of Mormon. But what do these religious groups do? They change the, the verses just ever so slightly. And this is where it gets super dangerous. Probably the best example of that I can think of is um, John chapter one. Is this an important verse? In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Is that an important thing there that's spoken of in John chapter one? Yeah, you get a sense, that's kind of a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because it's saying that in the beginning was the Word, capital W, which makes it, wait, Wait, what? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and them. It means that it's kind of saying that Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus is the embodiment of the Word. He fulfills the scriptures, the Word. Like it's such a deep and profound thing. And that's why we as Christians, anybody within the pale of orthodoxy, uh, you know all these li- groups I listed before, they, they tend to say, okay, yeah, we believe that God became a man, Emmanuel, and lived among us, Jesus. And that's one of the mysteries of the Holy Trinity, and it's a doctrinal important thing. Well, the people that didn't believe in that said, no, nope, we're going to change it. So they, they took liberties. They didn't look at original manuscripts. They didn't translate. They just said, we're going to fix that. So here's what they did. Do you, do you know how simple it is to tweak something out? They said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They just put the letter A in there. The word A. And it changed the meaning from being that you know, and you say, well, who believes in many gods? The Mormons. Do you understand that it's kind of a God-making sort of religious belief to, that you, you enter into Mormonism, you enter the terrestrial level, then the celestial level. And once you reach that celestial level, you become God, even as God once was like you, then you become sort of God-like. And uh, the Bible doesn't teach anything about that. That's just Joseph Smith looking through the wrong glasses and listening to the wrong angel. Do you remember what Galatians says? The we, Paul says, or an angel from heaven comes and gives you a doctrine or a teaching or gospel other than that which we have preached, let that angel be accursed. Joseph Smith, had he known Galatians chapter one, he should have said when Moroni came and showed up and said, I've got another gospel. He should have said, you're accursed. That's what he should have done. But instead he listened and wrote down and there we have the Book of Mormon and the doctrines and covenants. And all of his 50 wives and you know all that. It's crazy. The whole thing's crazy. It's sad. Mormons are some of the nicest people I know but I'm just saying, if you're a Mormon get rid of your book of Mormon and read the Bible that has withstood thousands of years of scrutiny. In our Bible, the doctrines of the Mormons have been changed 3,000 times since the beginning of Mormonism. The doctrines of Christianity have been changed zero times since the canon of scripture was put together. Zero. We keep this as our our book of doctrine. So there are translations that are just not translations. They're just, you know, meant to mess people up, honestly. So you say, Brett, but if the Bible's without error and you just said there's translations and some like the NIV might have some different things, are you worried about that? I'm not because because there are just translations. Don't worry about that. Um, I've been to Vanuatu where they have a Bishlama translation. Uh, do you know what Bishlama sounds like? The language of the South Pacific Islands there in, uh, not far from um, uh, Fiji. Uh, it's an amazing little language. Uh, when I've been to Vanuatu several times, I, I love hearing them talk. Cause they mix a little bit of French, a little bit of English, a little bit of their native island tongue. And they say stuff that's just kind of cool. And some of it you can almost make out. Some of the phrases I actually could figure out was things like this. If, if I introduced my wife to you in Vanuatu, I'd say, woman blong blong me Debbie politically correct here in America, but that's how they say it there. She blong blong me. Um, They use the word blong for anything possessive or mine or, you know, the the word blong kind of covers everything. Um, Like if you're in a restaurant and you're eating food and you think, where's the restroom? Don't look for the sign that says restroom. Look for this. Place blong pispis. That's really what it says. That's their language. I was just speaking Bishlama just now. These are the English words that are, I recognize. Um, uh, like, like one pastor came up to me and said, Pastor, I said, yes. He said, how many Christmas you got? And I said, what? How many Christmas you got? And I was like, what is he saying? And some guy knew of Bishlam. I said, well, he just asked you, how many Christmases have you lived through? In other words, how old are you? That's how he was asking how old I was is how many Christmases I've lived through. Uh, I love it. The problem is, they do have their own Bible translated in Bislama. Thank the Lord for that. But as I was teaching the Bible with them, I had a chance to compare the Bislama Bible with the English Bible and bless their hearts, it's a rough translation. <laughs> what it was is some sweet missionary in the 1930s that, was, uh, that came to Vanuatu and said, these poor people don't have Bibles. And so they spent 20 years translating the Bible from English to Bislama, and he gave it to them well, Brett, I don't think it's scholarly. Uh, It's not acceptable, scholarly-wise. Yeah, you and I could make that argument, but you know what's amazing? The Lord has used that little translation of the Bible, and I I bet you and I could probably do better uh, in some ways, translating to Bishlama uh, in some ways. But you know what? The Lord has used that translation to have many, many people come to know Jesus. And and if you care that much, then become a missionary and do a better translation for them uh, and give them the Bible so that they can actually read it. So all that to say, don't get too hung up on the translations. It's when people try to add to or take away from the word, that's the dangerous. That's what the cults do. Don't do that. But we have the reliable scriptures, the inspired, unblamable, perfectly perfect word of God. Well, I already took too much time on that one. Here we go. So number one, we see the inspiration of the word in this little vignette, the story But it goes on in verse five, and that brings us to point number two, the proclamation of the word. So we have the inspiration of the word. Now we have the proclamation of the word. Jeremiah, verse five, commanded Baruch saying, I am shut up. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Question, why was Jeremiah shut up? Was his Twitter account blocked? No, he was shut up because he was in prison. Remember, he's in prison. And so he he says, Baruch, I need you to do something for me. He said, I can't go into the house of the Lord. So verse six Therefore thou go and read in the roll thou which thou hast written from my mouth the words of the Lord in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day. And also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return every one from his evil way for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against his people." So Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading in the uh, the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. And it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, that the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord and all the people in Jerusalem and all the people that came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem then read Baruch in the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe in the higher court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the ears of all the people. Then read Baruch, this guy, Baruch. he read the scriptures right there in the ears of the people in the house of the Lord. Question, should pastors read scriptures in the congregation in the sanctuary of the Lord? Now I'm getting real nervous. i oh, boy. Did I go to the wrong? Is this the Mormon church? Did I just go? No, just kidding. Just messing with you. Yeah, let me ask that again. Should the Bible be read in sanctuaries in the church today? Yes. 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 I love this because that's exactly what Brigham does. He goes to the temple and reads the scriptures to the people. And the reason I sort of asked that question and I'm a little stunned is that sure, people are supposed to read their Bibles by themselves. I believe that. But I also believe you are supposed to cover some ground with scripture in church too. Paul, the apostle told young Timothy, he was a young minister in training. And listen to what Paul said to young Timothy. This is what he said. He said, till I come, give attendance to fundraising. That's not what it says. Give attendance to missionary work doesn't even say that. Give attendance to marriage counseling. Nope, doesn't say any of that. Here's what Paul told Timothy to give real extra attention to. He said, give attendance to reading. And then he says, to exhortation and to doctrine. First reading, then exhortation, then doctrine. And that's, that's interesting. He doesn't say doctrine, which means teaching. Doctrine is teaching what we believe from the Bible. And he's supposed to do that, but that's the third one on the list. The first one is the reading. Give attendance to the reading of scripture. The only way I know how to do that in a congregational setting like this is to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible and cover some ground. There's a lot of churches you can go to and they're good churches. They just have a different view on this. But I would just say, um, if you're in a church that goes kind of topically, just kind of a pastor chooses his favorite verses and every couple of years goes through the rotation of those sermons on family and balancing your checkbook and tithing and then another series on tithing. And then, you know, and eventually it kind of goes, is that all the Bible says? How long would it take for that church to have every word scripture from the Bible put up on the screen? It might take like, you know, three or 400 years if you're gonna try to get every verse from and do a sermon about every verse. It'd take forever. So the, the way I see it is we're supposed to give attention to the reading of scripture in church. And so we're on a currently about a 15 year pace. Uh, if you go into Wednesday night and Sunday morning, man, we cover scripture and we read through scripture because we believe the reading of scripture is important. And I, I just want to say that in the second point is, man, we need to get back to that. And I would encourage my pastor friends that might be watching, you know, this teaching, just to say, man, why wouldn't I just take the whole Word of God? Paul said to the Ephesus elders, he said, "Listen, we have not shunned to declare unto the whole council of God." He didn't d- decline one scripture, even the uncomfortable ones. He taught, and that's what we're all supposed to do. So I I, I can't support through the Bible teaching hard enough. I think it's the best way to go. I'm just saying there's good churches that teach topically. I'm not knocking them, but I'm saying there might be a better way. I'm just saying. And uh, we're supposed to give attendance a reading. So you got number one, the inspiration of the word. Number two, you got the declaration of the word. Baruch does that. But now we're gonna see the reaction to the word. That's number three, the reaction to the word. Verses 11, uh, all the way down through verse 21. Let's take a look. Well, it says, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, had heard out of the book all the words of the Lord, then he went down into the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and lo, all the princes there, and even Elishama, the scribe, and Deliah, the son of Shimia, or Shemiah, I should say, and Elnathan, the son of Achbor, and Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all of the princes, and then Micaiah declared unto them all the words that he heard when Baruch read the book in the ears of the people. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudi. Who? Jehudi. Who's Jehudi? Well, Jehudi's is the son of Nathaniah. it says here. <laughs> now you say, Brett, this is ridiculous. What's with all these names? Well, again, you pregnant ladies, this might be a good list to choose baby names, you know. <laughs> I call him Jehudi. I wouldn't call him Jehudi, I'll tell you why, because Jehudi's gonna be a bad guy in this story. Um, But you might say, Brett, truly, why are all these names in the Bible? I hate it when I get to the Bible and they're reading all these names. You know, you got Shemiah, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Achbor, and Gemariah, what's the deal? Well, here's the thing, the Lord's taking account each one of these guys and how they're gonna respond to the reading of scripture and the Lord's taking note of each one. Their names go down in history and there's only a few of them that are gonna defend the Bible and the rest of them are gonna do something else. Let's take a look. So I wonder if the Lord keeps track of Athey and by name saying, do you believe the Bible as the inspired word of God? Or are you gonna reject the Bible? That's the question that the world, the Lord's gonna sort that out. So that's why all these names are listed. Well, you got Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, verse 11, the son of uh, Shelemiah, the son of Cushi uh, unto Baruch. They said, take thine hand, In thine hand the roll wherein thou hast read in the ears of the people, and come. So Baruch the son of Neriah took the roll in his hand and came to them. And they said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears. Now it came to pass. And here's the reaction it came to pass when they had heard the words, they were afraid, both one and other, or it might be like you might say, one and all, they were all afraid. And they said to Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. What are they saying? They're a bunch of tattletales. We're telling, what are you gonna tell? Why were they afraid? Because the word that Jeremiah spoke through Beirut, do you remember what it was? Jerusalem's going down, repent, submit yourself to the Babylonians or else you're gonna die and birds are gonna pluck the flesh off your skin and eat it. Like that was the message of Jeremiah. And though these people are like, like, oh, treason, how can you speak against Jerusalem and our king that way? So we're telling, that's what they said. So verse 17, so they asked Baruch saying, tell us, how did thou write all these words at his mouth? Now, what are they asking us for? They're trying to build a case against them. Who's involved with this conspiracy, treasonous behavior, writing it? So Baruch answers, I love his simple answer. Then verse 18, then Baruch answered, he pronounced all these words to me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then said the princes unto Baruch, Go hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where you be. You're in trouble. You better get out of here. Is what they're saying. And verse twenty, they went into the king's into the court, and they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. So the first initial reaction to the word was fear. They said, man, we don't like what that says. That makes us nervous. Do you know a lot of people reject the Bible because they just don't like what it says? Can I tell you, just honestly, there's things in the Bible that I read that I don't necessarily even like. But you love the Bible, I do, I really do. But there's things I struggle with. But I gotta tell you, and this is something you should know if you're gonna be a part of an AC Creeker, and if you're gonna hear my Bible teaching, you gotta know something. Um, even if I don't like it, I'm gonna preach it as I love it. What do you mean, Brett? Well, let me give you an example. I know men and women pretty well. I've been in ministry for a long time and I see the way women roll and I see the way men roll. And, and I, I'm so impressed by ladies and their smarts and their abilities and the things that we men lack. So I get to a passage of scripture like 1 Timothy chapter 2, that says that men are to be the leaders in the church and women are not to usurp authority over the man. And then Paul says, because remember the Garden of Eden, where it was Eve who was deceived, not Adam. It was Eve who was first deceived. Remember, she wanted to have her eyes enlightened, become like God, and so she ate the fruit. And then and how was Adam stumbled? Ooh, she's pretty. <laughs> and he ate the fruit. <laughs> that, that was the man. But God... He chose men to lead the church. Now, now there's a lot of churches here in Portland you can go to, and there's going to be women elders and women pastors. What did they do to get to that, that thing? Even though Timothy says no, Paul tells Timothy no way. Well, I'll show you what they did here in a few minutes. It'll show, it'll show up here in our chapter. But as a, as a pastor, I think, man, Lord, why did you choose us guys? And I have a few insights as to why he chose us to lead the church. And why you won't find elder women, women elders. We have women in leadership roles, of course. And, uh, but elders and pastors, we do not have because the Bible says they're not supposed to do that. Well, Brett, I don't like that. Neither do I. Well, why do you do it then? Because it's in the Bible. The Bible says that. And, and I, I've learned, I think I know maybe why. Here's what, here's what happened. I think the Lord said, oh man, the guys, ooh. How are we going to get guys to be involved with the church? Because they're not, they don't have that natural pull. Women, they tend to be more spiritual. They pray harder. They read their Bible more faithfully. How can we? I know. We'll put them in charge. We'll give them a job to do. I really do believe something. I think that's why he chose me particularly. How should I keep Brett uh, in line? I know. I'll make him a pastor. Um, now, if you go to George Fox College, just down the road, they'll say, Brett, you're, anti- you're a Neanderthal man. I've been told that by college professors from George Fox. They were ladies that came in and yelled at me because we don't have women pastors. And Brett, come on, get with the times. Here's the problem. Once you start saying, well, this was not for today. What Paul wrote to Timothy was not for today. That was just an old thing. They, de- they demeaned women back in that day and that's just what happened. So you're saying the perfect inspired word of God without error wrote that in there for centuries. And and you know what's even worse about your argument? If if your argument is, well, that that wasn't for, it was just during those days. Did you hear Paul's analogy that he gave there? He said, the reason why women shouldn't lead in the church, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. It had nothing to do with Jewish times in Jerusalem back in 100 AD, nothing to do with that. It had to do with the Garden of Eden and that goes way past any cultural or other issues the Lord says, this is what I'm gonna do. So I just take that and say, I'm gonna submit to the Bible whether I like it or not. And there's a bunch of things that are hard. Our world right now is pushing hard. Man, we celebrate homosexuality. It's a wonderful thing. Oh, it's so great in every sitcom and every show and every uh, you know, uh, uh, reality TV show. You always have to have your token you know homosexual couple so that it's all very inclusive and everything. But as a Christian, what do you do with this? while the world's celebrating homosexuality, six times in the Bible, the Lord says, homosexuality is called sin. It's an abomination before the Lord. And you might be saying, I don't really like that, Brett. I might even say, I don't either, but guess what? The Lord who wrote his word and gave us his God-breathed scriptures, that actually on that issue, homosexuality, people pretty much agree with the Bible up until about 20, 30 years ago it's amazing how we've changed. Everything's changing so fast. Now it's not even homosexuality, it's are you a boy or a girl? And what do you feel like in any given moment? And we're, we're, we're changing things that have been true for thousands and thousands of years. Now we're changing stuff. I love that we have the anchor of the word and the word goes way past what I like or feel. It's the anchor that holds us to truth. So I take it as the inspired word of God. Some of you might say, well, Brad, I don't. But I wanna give you this word of caution because this is what happened. The people were afraid when they heard the word. Some of you might even be afraid right now. I can't believe I I showed up to this church. This is my first Sunday. And first of all, I noticed that nobody's wearing masks. (laughs) And am I gonna go to jail? And not only that, you said something bad about homosexuality. Yeah, I said, it's, it's sin. It's called sin in the Bible. And people get nervous. That was the response. When Jeremiah had Baruch read the word, they said, "We're afraid, and you're in trouble, and we're going to go tell." We've had people come to services here and call the CDC. It's it's a little troubling, you know. It's like, man, I understand if you don't want to come where there's maskless people. I understand that, but don't like don't come here and then go and call the CDC. I just don't get it. Uh, last Wednesday night, or two Wednesday nights ago, we were here doing our Wednesday night Bible study. And some little dude drove his car up from Westland, drove in here, and parked right here and took his camera out and started snapping shots of all of you guys through that window right there. Our security team finally caught him and said, what are you doing, man? He said, oh, I can't believe you guys are murdering people. Even though uh, a church of 6,000 people and I don't know one person, I don't know personally one person who's died of coronavirus. It's amazing this pandemic, how I don't know one person. I know some people have been sick. But we've not had one case here at Athey that started here because people were here, not one. In six months of meeting, not one. You think in a pandemic, we'd have one, just one. It's amazing to me. But as it turns out, the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. See, that's how literally we sort of take the Bible. We just do what the Bible says and man's opinion's gonna come and go and someday we're gonna look back on the corona scamdemic and say, I mean pandemic <laughs> and say, now I believe that it's real. I believe there's people really sick, but I don't think they're as sick as everybody says they're gonna be. And man, it's amazing how there's nobody dying of pneumonia or the flu or the cold this year. It's all coronavirus. It's crazy. The numbers aren't matching up. But the word of God is gonna remain. See, that's the thing. So the reaction to the word is very much like we see. People get freaked out when you say, I believe the Bible, and this is what's gonna happen. They say, We're we're gonna tell. Well, now we come to the fourth section of this, the rejection of the word. And this is where it gets brutal. And I hope you're not in this category. Verse 22, it says, now the king, remember that's Jehoiakim, the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. Sounds cozy, huh? The king sitting before his fire, fire on the hearth, roasting marshmallows, great. But then this thing happens, verse 23. It came to pass that when Jehudi had read three of the four leaves of the scroll of Jeremiah, that he cut it with a penknife uh, and he cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Now, what would have been a better response? For him to rip his clothes and repent and say, oh, we're sinners and we're gonna listen to Jeremiah. We're gonna break off our sins and follow the Lord. That's why verse 24 says, yet, They were not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king or any of his servants that heard all these words. Nevertheless, now here are the guys that are named that go down and saying, don't do this. Nevertheless, Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. Three dudes stood up and said, don't do this. Don't destroy the word of God that came to Jeremiah, but they wouldn't listen. So verse 26, but the king commanded Jeremiel, the son of Hamalek, and Sariah, the son of Atzareel, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdil, to take Baruch, the scribe, uh, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. This is a YouTube video I'm gonna watch when I get to heaven. How did the Lord hide Jeremiah and Baruch? Isn't this, this great? Hey, somebody go get Baruch and Jeremiah. We're gonna, we're gonna kill them. Okay, go get them. <laughs> they march down to the prison and they go to, hey, where's Jeremiah? I don't know. (laughs) Nobody knows. The Lord hid them. How did he hide them? (laughs) Did he make them disappear? Did he transfer them to Hawaii for a couple minutes? Like, I don't know what happened, but I'm gonna check out that video when I get to heaven. But the Lord protected Baruch and Jeremiah. They couldn't find them. So that brings us to, so you have you know this this section, verses 22 through 26, the rejection of, of the word, and God forbid that you're in that role. Too many churches even now reject the, the, this as the word of God. It is the word of God. It's, it shouldn't be us judging the word, the word should judge us. And you know, the truth is, Jehoiakim's gonna go down, as we're gonna see, uh, a total loser and never have an heir to the throne, and his body's gonna lie on the, 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 the mountains of Israel and be lying in the frost, decaying. That's what's gonna happen to Jehoiakim. Meanwhile, the Bible remains. And see, that's the thing. You say, but Brett, the Bible didn't remain. They cut it up with a knife, threw it in a fire, and it's gone now. Not so. This is the last of my points. Number five, the preservation of the word. Check this out, verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll, which the words Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, take thee again another roll. And write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And thou shalt say to Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus saith the Lord: Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, shall cause this uh, shall cause to cease from thence man and beast. Verse thirty. Therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out in the day of the heat and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity and I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I've pronounced against them. But they hearkened not. Then took Jeremiah the other roll, and gave it to Baruch the scribe the son of Neriah who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book was Joachim king of Judah had burned with the fire and there were added besides unto them many like words. In other words, they made copies of the book of Jeremiah. Thus we have it today in our Bible written down on paper. I love that. Men and women who oppose the word or love sin, they oppose the Bible because The Bible exposes what they're doing as sin and they hate that. And the Bible warns of the wrath that's to come. You know, there is a time coming, even like this story, except instead of it just being Jerusalem, the wrath of God is gonna be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. That's coming. The people who believe in the Bible and believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah dying on the cross for the sins of the world, if you're saved by the grace of God, you're saved out of the, the wrath that's meant for all of us. But if you reject the Bible, say, I'm going to do it my own way. And I don't believe the Bible and all that. The Bible says you'll be held accountable for that belief system. When you call something okay, when the Lord says, no, it's not okay. The Lord's going to hold you to that. Just like he holds these people. But that sounds kind of brutal. But the Lord in his love has given us his word and the, and the anchor that should hold us down. And whether you cling to that anchor or not, that's up to you. I hope you choose wisely because guess what? People who've gone against the Bible, they die and they fade through history, but the Bible remains. Listen to what the Bible says of itself. In Mark 13, 31, this is Jesus talking. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 says, all men are like grass. All their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers. And the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. People have come and gone and were glorious. They were like a flower. Wow, look at that person. They're amazing in history, but they all come and go, especially those that hated the word. Swiss theologian, a guy by the name of Theodore Biza, in the 16th century, they were trying to destroy the word and hide it and burn it and get rid of all scriptures. But Theodore Berza made this declaration. He said, the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. The Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. I love that. How true. What do you mean, Brett? Well, take, remember I told you about Antiochus Epiphanes a couple weeks ago? He's the guy that was the madman that killed a bunch of Jews and stuff. One of the other things he did, uh, you know, is he, uh, Antiochus IV, the king of the Seleucid Empire who brutally persecuted the Jews, he burned all the scriptures he could find, the Hebrew Bibles and scrolls. In fact, he declared death to anyone who owned a scroll that contained scriptures. And yet, as it turns out, the Bible survived. Even Antiochus's, you know destruction. In AD 300, from 301 to 304, the Roman emperor Diocletian, Boy, by that time, the Christian church was hanging by a thread as persecution, the 10 waves of Roman persecution against the church came to a feverish level. And Diocletian was one of the worst. He killed thousands and thousands of Christians, but he also burned thousands of copies of the Bible. Uh, There in 301, he commanded all the Bibles uh, and scrolls be destroyed and made a decree that any house that found, they found a Bible in that house, they would burn the house to the ground. He even built a monument, this guy Diocletian, over what he thought to be the last surviving Bible. They thought they'd found the final one. So they built a monument. um, And the monument, it, it said on it this, the Christian name has been extinguished. Mission accomplished. That's what he said. But it's interesting because Diocletian was, the story kind of goes on from there. Diocletian, before he died, he built this beautiful, fancy mausoleum. Fancy, fancy building. And it was a mausoleum for himself. See, by this time Diocletian de- declared himself deity. He claimed to be God. And so everybody's worshiping their emperor as God. Hail you know, Caesar, you know, hail Diocletian. And they were worshiping. So when he died, they put him in a sarcophagus and put him in his ma- mausoleum, this huge sort of church-like building. There was a mausoleum given to the God, Diocletian. And for 500 years, they, people would go in there and worship, this guy Diocletian. But after 500 years, people started forgetting who Dio was. And so they found the box in the middle that had some bones in it and they got rid of that and they turned it into a church. <laughs> and the church was where they would read the Bible. And they decided to name the church after a fallen saint. Um, now this is, this is the irony of it all. They named this church the Cathedral of St. Dominus. Now this is like, I believe it's in Croatia actually where this church is, but it to this day is standing as a church. It's the oldest church in the Catholic church of all the churches. Um, it's one of the oldest buildings in the world, um, but it still stands as a church. And the reason it's called St. Dominus is because Dominus was a Christian that was killed by Diocletian. He was a Christian who was martyred by Diocletian. Nobody remembers Diocletian, but but people to this day worship in the church, uh, the cathedral of St. Dominus. That's interesting. Look it up, you can Google it. The American political leader, Robert G. Ingersoll, maybe you remember reading about him in history. 1833 to 1899, his life was but he was a famous atheist, and he once pronounced and proclaimed this. He said, in 15 years, I will have this book. And he held up a Bible and he said it. I will have this book in the morgue. That was his stupid claim. But you know what's interesting is 15 years to the day was the day he died and ended up in the morgue. And the Bible continues on. Lee Wallace, who was, a, or Lou Wallace, I should say, um, lived in the late 1800s. He was an amazing guy, really. A well-known atheist, but he was a writer. He was a civil war general. He was a governor to the territory uh, at that time of New Mexico. And then later he became the US ambassador to Turkey of all things. Like this guy was pretty amazing in his political exploits, but he also hated the Bible and hated Christians. So um, toward the end of his life, he moved to Europe seeking to disprove the Bible, seeking information. He went to all the libraries of Europe and sought for information and he was writing a book called Forever Destroy Christianity. That's what he was gonna do, that was his thing. When he got to writing the second chapter of his book, Lou Wallace found himself dropping to his knees, praying to Jesus for salvation because he found the Bible to be indisputable and the evidence was undeniable. He could no longer deny that the Bible was, in fact, the Word of God. Later, Lew Wallace wrote a book that's somewhat famous called, Ben-Hur. One of the greatest English novels ever written, if you ask me, and and, uh, it was about Christ. It's an amazing story uh, about Christ. Um, But Lew Wallace, an avid atheist, set out to, as he said, forever destroy Christianity, came to Christ. And you know, there's modern examples of that. Lee Strobel, you've maybe read his book, uh, you know, Case for Christ. His wife was one of those crazy Christians and he wanted to show his wife. And he was a, a scholar. He was a journalist. And he, he, he set out to, to disprove the Bible, systematically tear it apart. And he too finally realized the Bible's the anvil that has broken many hammers. And he became a Christian. Uh, quite an outspoken Christian, which is kind of nice. I like that. Lee Strobel's got great book, Case for Christ. You should read it if you have it. Be that as it may, I want to challenge you as Christians to once again have a new reverence for, a new fervor for the Lord's word, because it's not the word of men, it's the word of God. Um, I'm going to say something that's an opinion, and I I always like to warn you when I'm giving an opinion. So this is an opinion. I can't make a biblical case for this as much, but I am going to give you a strong opinion. And what's that? I want to challenge you to reconsider, and, and hear me out here, to not just go with the digital Bible. You know, the iPad, the iPhone. Now some of you are like, you're putting your iPhone away. You're like, okay, Pastor Brad, am I going to hell? Cause I, no, some of our pastors are using digital Bibles right now. I'm still praying for their salvation, but no, just kidding. No, just messing with No, but I, I wanna make a case for this. Get a Bible that's real, like this one, paper, and get one that's legit. Like don't get a paperback one, get one that's gonna last you for the rest of your life. And choose a good translation. I already went over some good ones, whether it's the, uh, get the King James or the New King James, or uh, I love the New King. If you're wanting to follow along with me and not go King James, go New King James. It's like King James only without the these thousand of verilies. Or ESV, man, get, get a Bible and, and get get an expensive one. Why, Brett? Are you a Bible salesman? Nope. I'm just saying, you know, we spend all this money on our socks, on our shoes, on our clothes. We spend all this money on stuff. Why wouldn't you spend a little money on a legit Bible that's gonna last kind of for the rest of your life? This is a old Cambridge Bible from the Cambridge University in England. Cambridge Cameo is what this one is. It's a small, I like the size of it. It's carryable, it's old King James. It's printed in the old printing ink of the printing press. Like it's still, like it's not laser printed kind of thing. It's kind of cool. And, and, um, and it's, it's a great Bible, I like it. And, it's, and you can get really legit leather bound stuff. This is a, I went and got this from a saddle maker. I went to a saddle shop. Why? All the Bible covers I found looked like girl leather, like a nice purse or something. <laughs> Just not a purse kind of guy. And so I, I thought, I, I need like real manly leather. So I went to a saddle shop and, and I asked this old dude, could you make me a Bible cover? He's like, I never have made one, I don't make saddles. So I said, well, try it. So he made this one for me, it's worked out nicely. Now here's the thing. Get a Bible that you like. And you know, this Cambridge Cameo, honestly, if you want to get one like this today, you're gonna have to pay about 220 bucks. But it's worth it. It's your Bible. Like this is the most important thing I have. Um, and, And I get to keep it for the rest of my life. And And get a Bible that you now some of you may not be into this, but I love writing my notes in my Bible. I like, I like things that the Lord has shown me, and and then you kind of own scriptures like you remember, oh yeah, I remember when I first read this, and I was learning some of these things and, and you know the thing about the Bible that 's so cool is when, when you when you have these pages full of notes, man, it reminds you of all the things the Lord has shown you and what you 've been through in life, and it 's there for the record. Not only that, another argument why don 't want you to go iPad only or iphone only is because When you have the Bible on iPad, it scrolls and it's just a long, infinite scroll. Science has actually proven that when you look at something on a page and it's located on a page and the location, you will remember better where that is and what it actually said. When it's just scrolling infinitely Bible, you may or may not remember that verse very well. There's something about looking at on a page. There's scriptures, I couldn't tell you what the address is. bro. where do you find this verse? And I might even say, well, let me show you. And that's my way of saying, I don't remember the number, but I'll show you and I'll say, and I'll even know right oh, before I even look, it's right here on the page because I know where it is on the page. You start to own stuff with a real Bible and you can write your notes in there. And then here's, I could give you 20 of these reasons, but let me give you one more. When you get out your iPhone and you're saying, I'm gonna do my Bible reading for the day, you know, and I'm gonna read the, the scriptures. So we pull it out and you take it. Here's the problem in your hand. You can look at the Bible. You can also look at your calendar to see what's going on that day. Oops, just got a text reminding me to do this. Oh, just got a reminder. I need to get my steps in for the day. Oops, got a reminder. You know, and, 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 and pretty soon you, you got all these notices and notifications and the Bible is like one of many things that you're looking at. It almost like puts the Bible in the same category as all the other stupid stuff that's on your phone. Honestly, some people will read the Bible and they'll look at porn on the same device. God forbid. There's something about a person that says, let's just put this down for a second and, and we're gonna forget texting and twi- tweeting and, and uh, Facebooking and all this. And let's just give the Lord our entire attention. No, no texts, no pop-ups, no temptations to look at other things and just say, I'm gonna crack open my Bible and I'm gonna read the Holy Scriptures. It, it sort of gives the Bible sort of a whole nother level of importance. I see a temptation for people just to diminish. Say, ah, the Bible, yeah, whatever, the good book. No, it's the inspired Word of God. And I I think there's something about having a real one. Can I just, I'll give you one more reason. I miss hearing pages turning. I really do. At Athey Creek, circa 2005, I'd say, you know, turn in your Bibles and you'd hear this. It was a music to my ears. Now, turn in your Bibles don't stop believing because somebody forgot their volume was up and that's their ringtone or whatever. And, and I just get kind of weary of that. The digital thing, you know, it's got its place. I use my Bible on my iPhone all the time, but when it comes to serious saying, I'm going to set aside time to get into the word. And, and even, you know, I've got people in this room right now that could say, you know, I've gone through the Bible, Brett, with you already. It took you 15 years but, but you're, you're reviewing the notes that you put in your Bible from the last time we were in Jeremiah chapter 36. And you're saying, man, have I learned? It's so exciting to kind of see your journey. It's easier to do that, I think, with a real Bible. So, so food for thought, get yourself a Bible, a real one. Carry it, bring it back to church, man. Uh, it'll make this pastor happy, that's for sure. I think it's a good thing to do. But even if you go digital or whatever, the truth is the word of God is living and powerful, the word of God is inspired and the word of God is without error. And I hope you know that. I hope you see that. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, we are impressed. Lord, your word, it just shows itself true. Time and time again, Lord, even though it's been, they've been, a, a, there've been many attempts on trying to destroy your word or make it extinct. But your word remains, people by the billions studying the Bible to this day. Lord, I pray that we would take your word as as it is in truth, not the word of men, but your word, inspired. May we give credibility to your word and instead of us judging the word, may your word judge us and our attitudes about what we think about stuff. Help us to submit to your word and not submit to our culture or this world and its ways. Lord, make your church solid by clinging to the word. May your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, we pray. So as we go our way, bless this, your congregation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.